Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the Little Feminist Book Club. Little Feminist wants to help you diversify your child's bookshelf. Each box is built around one to two books of the month that feature strong female characters and or people of color. Their books are selected by a team of teachers, librarians, and parents. I recently received a Little Feminist Book Club box and my three-year-old and eight-year-old loved it. There were activities, a book to read, stickers, conversation pieces, discussion points. It was wonderful. Go to littlefeminist.com and use the coupon code WINNER or click on the link at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast to get started with your Little Feminist Book Club box today. Support also comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. So look, thank you so very much for this opportunity to speak about my books and everything. I feel grateful that you shared your books with me. I really, truly found them moving and beautiful and wonderful. I cannot wait to talk to you on record about it. Okay, well, well let's do it. Let's do it. Paid or not, today's guest shares, I will be found writing because I am compelled to do so. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 475. I'm your host, Matthew Winner, and today I'm joined by Alice Faye Duncan, author and poet. Alice brings two new picture books to the show. The first is called Memphis, Martin, and the Mountaintop, The Sanitation Strike of 1968, and through the voice of a young girl, the story recounts the sanitation strike that brought Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis, and that would reach all corners of the city in its breadth and scope. R. Gregory Christie illustrated the story, and his art beckons readers to sit with the varied emotions that hang on the faces of those involved and affected by the strike. Alice also shares a song for Gwendolyn Brooks, a picture book told in poetry about the gifted and glorious life of an American treasure. The format of this book is that of a love poem to Gwendolyn's life and legacy, and quite frankly, I found myself clinging to every word. Two beautiful picture books and a conversation worthy of their merit. Please welcome my guest, Alice Faye Duncan, and her newest picture books, Memphis, Martin, and the Mountaintop and a song for Gwendolyn Brooks. Welcome to the podcast, Alice Faye Duncan. I am glad we are talking on record. And I am delighted to be on record speaking with you, Matthew. My friend, you did, I gotta just say, before before even getting to formal introductions, I am so grateful that I got to meet you through your books, that you reached out to me, that you shared a story. I feel like Long before I knew you were a librarian, I I sensed that power of story in you and that connected us. And I'm really grateful for that. Well, I thank you for having me today. So uh, why don't you take a moment just to introduce yourself to those who haven't met you or your books yet? Maybe, Alice, just your, your name and, and what books you've written. Okay, sounds like a plan. Uh, my name is Alice Faye Duncan, and that's Faye with an E. Uh, I'm a school librarian from the city of Memphis. I've been a school librarian for about 26 years. I'm a national board librarian. Uh, I was a elementary school librarian when I began my career. No, I take that back. I was a public 
librarian that was uh, doing children's work when I started my career. I did that for about two years. Then I became a elementary school librarian for about six years. And now for the last 19 years, I've been a high school librarian. Um, And and I've been writing the whole time. So so here was the plan. I went to library school. um, I went to library school at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And I had a professor, his name was Glenn Estes, and I was his GA, his graduate assistant, and he was like a scholar in children's books. And so one of my duties was to like catalog his his collection of picture books, catalog his database. Um, and I just began to read the books and I, I just, I was interested in like wanting to know myself how do I become a writer? Because the books were enchanting for me, but also because the text was so sparse in the children's books that I was reading, I and they were like poetic, they were poems. I felt like I too could like perhaps be a writer. And so, so I, I decided at that time, like, you know what? I want to be a librarian, but I also want to write. And I, I think I sold my first book to Macmillan I sold my first two books to Macmillan when I was like 24, 25 years old. Um, And so because I was starting my career and my librarian's career and writing at the same time, I just knew in my heart of hearts that that writing career was going to, you know, uh, zoom, you know, through, you know, just zoom through the roof. And I and I was going to be like a writer for life. But that did not happen. (laughs) So here I am talking to you 26 years later and so delighted to be doing so. 26 years later, though, and you still have your foot in the door of a library. You are in front of children daily. There's something to be said for that. Yes, it is something to be said for that. Can you say uh, fortitude? (laughs) (laughs) Can you say resilient? (laughs) Resilience, indeed. Can you say determined? Can you say courageous? Oh, you're working in high school. Let me tell you, I could see Courageous written all over that. <laughs> as a, I'm 14 years into education, 12 as an elementary school librarian, and I feel like, probably much like the conversations I've had with other guests on this podcast, where people tend to be drawn to write the stories at sort of the age level or the format where they first really found themselves in books. You find yourself in picture books and so you tend to write picture books or you find yourself in novels or in verse and you tend to write there. But I find that teaching is sort of the same thing. My my deepest connections in school, I feel like, happen in the elementary school age. And so here I am. I just can't leave. And, and you shouldn't uh, because you have the passion for the books, you have the passion for the children and and elementary children. They need, you know, my mother is a veteran uh, teacher. She taught for 40 years in, in the Memphis City Schools. And so my mother always says, even now, she says, when children are in pre-K to third, fourth grade, they really need to see a parent figure in the classroom and they need to be experiencing someone who is connecting to them like a parent. Um, and so because you have that passion, I, I, I think it's, it's great for you to be there and, and stay there, you know, as, as long as, you know, as, as long as the spirit pertains <laughs> you to do that. <laughs> oh man. I love it. There's so much already that I'm garnering from you <laughs> for that staying power. And, can I just call out that I'm amazed that you've you've here, you know, made millions in children's publishing because we know how lucrative it is and oh, still yes, you stay so in the library. <laughs> it's it's so it's so lucrative that I, I, I just can't stay away. Um, uh, but 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 the, the thing about it, because, you know, it is not lucrative. And right. and 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 here's the thing. If they if someone was paying me to write or not. I'm going to be found writing because I'm a writer and I'm compelled to do that. Um, um, if I were a singer, I would be singing whether someone pays me or not because that is my vocation. That is my true vocation, actually. Writing is my true vocation. It's the thing that I do 
whether there there is uh, there are Cohens involved or not, uh, not you know C O I N S, and and so and so I I, I keep doing it. Um, Alice, since when has writing been the thing that you do? Has writing been a part uh, ever of your life ever since you were young, or did you find that uh, as a young adult? Well, I, I'm an only child, so so here's the the story here. I'm an only child, and I spent a great deal of time um, in a house with two adults where they treated me like the third adult. Uh, my parents were both teachers. They were both voracious readers. Uh, my father, when we moved to our new house, when I was like four years old, my father literally put bookshelves in every room. Um, so I've, I've been surrounded by books all of my life. And because I was the only child, when I was alone, writing, coloring, making up songs, uh, you know, having long communications with my imaginary friends, um, that's what I did. And and um, let let's talk about uh, here's a, here's a life story. We moved, <laughs> we moved when I was four years old, and yeah. and moved from. Uh, the the inner city, for lack of a better word, we moved from the inner city to the suburbs. And this is the early days of integration. So this is like 1972. So we moved to this new neighborhood and it's a white neighborhood. Um, and the school is now also being integrated. And so you've now got white teachers teaching black kids and, and this and, you know, so on. So my mother and father being educators, they say, hey, this is our neighborhood school. We're going to send little Alice to the neighborhood school. And and that's what they do. Well, now I entered that school in first grade and my cousins, my big cousins had been telling me how first grade is the year when you're going to learn how to really read, it's going to, you're going to go beyond those ABCs. Mm. Uh, you're going to go beyond the colors and the blocks and the shapes. I mean, you are now about to hit the nitty gritty. You're going to like, you know, encounter real books. And, and the first grade teacher is going to teach you how to read on your own. So you don't have to have your mother to read you bedtime stories anymore. So I'm like, yes, bring on first grade. But when I, <laughs> when I get to first grade, I have a teacher who has like a room full of 25, 30 kids and she is allowing us to color all day. And we've got like two hour recess. And it was like, wait, where, where are the books? And when are we going to start these words and, 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 and this phonics and, and when am I going to learn how to like read on my own so that my mother does not have to read story time to me at night anymore? And it was never happening. And so the first week of school, when there is like absolutely no learning going on, I come home crying every day because, you know, the lady that's teaching us, she is having us play all day. And I'm like, I'm tired of playing. I'm tired of, <laughs> I'm tired of staying outside for two hours. And so my, my father got so tired of hearing me cry. He was like, look, you'll just go to school with me. And so I went to school with him and and I entered into Miss Betty Johnson's class. And first day I get there, you know, she puts me in the little, uh, the little, I guess the little Bluebird group, which is like the little group that's like the second or third, you know, group, because I'm now, I'm just not where I should be. Um, but then, by, but I'm so voracious and so determined by that second week, I'm like, I get promoted to the top group because I'm Whoa. like, I, I, I'm learning everything. Everything this woman has, I, I'm learning it. And um, and because I wanted to read. And then once I, I began to read, I just wanted to write. And, and I, my again, our house had like books everywhere. And my mother had like a large poetry collection, Paul Ernst Dunbar, Gwendolyn Brooks, Langston Hughes. And of course, like poems like Langston Hughes, poems like uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, some of her poetry. It's like it was like easy for me to to read. It, it wasn't it wasn't anything that was difficult to decode. Uh, and it was like it, it was uh, in the common language, folk language, and I I could just understand it. And so, you know, it was then. I just once I learned how to read, and then moved on to writing. I, I've been writing poetry and poems. I know 
voraciously probably since second grade or more. I have the biggest smile on my face. I love, I not only love hearing that, but I, I love that it has become your story, that this is something that you draw back from, from that age of five or six or seven, that you're going back to there and then you can feel the, the strength, the fire starting right there and just propelling you forward. I love your memory of how driven you were even then to learn, to find that knowledge, to seek that independence, to be able to create your own, to be able to create your own stories, create your own uh, poems, to, to string all of this world and knowledge together to create your own understanding. I love but now, that. But, now, but look, but, 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 okay, but, but understand what was happening though. What was happening was my mother who taught school was having to read these stories at night because I would not let her, uh, <laughs> I would not let her put me to bed without a story. Okay. So she was going to have to read and she would be so <laughs> tired, Matthew. She would be so tired at night that by the time she hit that second story, she was falling asleep on me. And I, I, I had no choice but to be an independent reader. Yeah. Okay. Because she's going to fall asleep. She was falling asleep. <laughs> and I was like, I got to read because my mother can't stay up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Okay, so let's let's step back a second um, because I, I want to be here to talk also about these books that you're writing as an adult, the book that you have been writing since you were in your 20s. But I, I love this through line of your childhood. I love that. So, um, Alice, prior to uh, us setting up a date to talk, uh, I've been reading your, your two newest books. You have Memphis, Martin, and the Mountaintop, uh, mm -hmm. The Sanitation Strike of, of 1968, which has come out already. Uh, and coming out at the uh, start of the new year is a song for Gwendolyn Brooks. Two beautiful books um, showcasing two... Uh, well, fam really, I would say two families, uh, centering around two families and centering through a voice, uh, a poetic voice, a voice uh, telling us a story through poems, uh, through, I feel like, very selective, precise words. I really got that sense of, of your love of language by reading both of these. Um, but I also see in them a child. I see in them a, a, a child observing the world, a child finding their own way through the truth that they are observing. And I can't help but feel like, man, this is Alice's life. You've gone through <laughs> this and you're looking at other people uh, in in history, in experiences, in finding finding that way to connect to readers as well. Because isn't that what we do? We find, we find our way in. Why don't you right. talk, do you mind sharing a little bit about Memphis, Martin, and the Mountaintop. Why don't we start there? Okay. Well, well, I am from the city of Memphis, born and raised. And so Memphis is the city where Dr. King was assassinated. He's assassinated in 1968. Uh, he's assassinated at the Lorraine uh, Motel. And I grew up in a place called South Memphis. Well, a lot of the the men, the sanitation workers lived in my in my community. Uh, a lot of the people who were involved in the struggle and the strike uh, of 1968 uh, lived in my community. And then people involved with the the Dr. King drama lived in my community. So the the policeman, Mr. Ed Reddit, who is the policeman assigned to monitor King when he comes to the city. Mr. Ed Reddit is my neighbor. He lives across the street from me. Um, the um, the the one of the first African American men to be on the city council who helps to resolve the strike is uh, is a man named Reverend Patterson. Reverend Patterson lives two doors away from me. Um, the the photographer who photographs King is is Ernest Withers. Ernest Withers was one of the the church photographers at the church where I grew up. Um, one of the strike strategists, one of the, the ministers who helped the sanitation workers uh, strategize to, to, to make the strike successful was a Reverend Henry Logan Starks. And I attended, he was the pastor at the church that I attended. 
Um, so, so as a child, all of these quote unquote players surrounding the strike and the assassination, they peopled my world. And so then I grow up, I become a librarian, an educator, and I have these encounters with students. I am having encounters with them in January for MLK Day. I'm having encounters in February for Black History. Um, I'm having everyday encounters just speaking about our history as Memphians during the course of a day. And none of the students can tell me when we talk about King, none of the students can tell me why was King in Memphis in 1968. Now the students can tell me where he was killed, mm. but they cannot tell me why he was in Memphis. They, we cannot have a discussion about why perhaps he was killed at this time and not in 63 and not in 55, you know, I mean, and, and so, um, and so I just, I, I felt like, oh, I want to share this story with children. So I was doing a story time one day and I said, I'm going to go and find me a book about Dr. King and the, his assassination and the strike so that I can share the story with children and they can now be able to verbalize why King is in Memphis because it's an economic battle. And um, and they can have more knowledge than just, oh, I know Dr. King. He got shot at the low range. So when I go look for the book, there is no book. And this is like 2005. And, and it dawns on me when there is no book. It dawns on me that, look, I know Ernest Withers. I know uh, Reverend Patterson. I knew Ed Reddit. You know, I, I, I knew Reverend Starks, uh, Reverend Starks' daughter, is a great friend of our families, and she's like my mother's uh, daughter. Um, and so it's like, and we talk about we we would talk about the sanitation strike, the circumstances of 1968 all the time. And it, it dawned on me. I said, you know what? I said, this is my story to tell. This is my story to write. Yeah. And so and so I just went on a journey starting in 2005 to write it. And wrote it in about, oh, I, I wrote it about like, what, seven or eight drafts. Uh, I got a kajillion million rejection letters. But finally, by 2015, the story had evolved. Uh, I was trying to make it a, a old man story. I was trying to make it a story about a little boy and a granddad. I was, I was just trying to make it, a, you know, because, you know, you, you know, the, the, the big sign, the I am a man sign. And so you're thinking, OK, this is a black man story, black boy story or whatever. But but one day I was speaking with uh, Dr. Amela Starks and she was talking about her mother and father and them all going to hear King the night uh, before his death. And she begins to share some more stories about her life as a, a teen, uh, as a teenager. She sang during the rallies and things. And I said, you know what? What if I tell this story from the perspective of a little girl who who attends the the rallies, who marches, who boycotts, who witnesses all of these monumental moments before King is assassinated? And so when I turned that story around and not and to not make it an old man story or a little boy story, but I turned it around to make it a little girl story, it, it then became it just it, it began to feel very um, organic and very sensitive to me and and very um, it, it just became very sensitive and. I don't, and emotional for me. Mm. Um, and, and, and I was able to then articulate it in another way. And I submitted it to, I submitted it to Carolyn Yoder at, at, at Boyd's Mills Press. And, and she finally, I got a yes, finally, long last, after 10 years, I got a yes. And so Carolyn says, yes, Alice, I, we want to publish this book. And then she says, but there is only one problem. And I was like, what is it? And she says, we don't want, we don't want it in this form. So you're going to have to rewrite it. <sighs> and so, so I had already written it, I guess about seven times. So I said, you know, I've written this story seven times. Writing it one more time is not going to, uh, is not going to inconvenience me at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so and so I, I rewrote it. And then when I rewrote it under the 
guidance and the eye of someone who is really a master of shaping uh, historical fiction and nonfiction. I mean, I don't even, I mean, I was like, I was like, okay, I know that I participated in writing this story. I did, but you know, but it's like a child. Yeah. It's, it's yours. It's of you, but it's not you, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, one of the things that I valued so much in both hearing your story, but also experiencing the story myself is that you're telling me the story that uh, you were working in the library and you went to find a book to read to your children about the assassination of Martin Luther King, and you couldn't find one. But the book that came out here, mm-hmm. and I think this is so smart with the titling of the book as well, I feel like the main the main character of this book, almost front and foremost, is Memphis, is the city and people of Memphis, not King. No, it's not. And and so and so as a Memphian, <laughs> as a Memphian, you know, that is very important because the sanitation strike of 1968 is a movement that was led by sanitation workers, yes. uh, Memphis preachers. There there would have been no movement if if people like uh, my mother, her friends, our neighbors did not contribute their dollars, their change uh, to the sanitation workers so that they could pay bills and they could, you know, have things for their children during the time that they weren't working. It was a it was a the, the strike was a people's movement where where teachers uh teachers and black principals were not allowing their children to go to school on Monday. They called it Black Monday because the the strike became more than just about the economics for the sanitation workers. It was about the economics of people in Memphis. And so people began to say, you know what, while we're striking for the sanitation worker, uh, what about what about having black people work jobs at the banks? Are, are you going to now start giving black people jobs at the banks? If not, okay, we're boycotting your bank today. Are you going to start giving black people jobs at the department stores in downtown Memphis? Oh, you're not? Okay, so while we are boy- while we are striking with the strikers, we're about to boycott Lowenstein's. We're about to boycott gold, uh, Goldsmith's. You know, uh, we're, so... That beauty, it, that beauty there of, of people that that carry out our trash people mm-hmm. that, that deal with some of the, you know, some of the uh, dirtiest, most undesirable jobs, but they do it. They show up, they do these 1300 men that desert that, that job and upend an entire city. An, an entire city and, 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 and bring dignity. They bring dignity to themselves, but then they also instill in their children dignity. They instill in their wives dignity. They instill in the citizens of the community dignity because because, because the signs are saying dignity. The signs are saying, you know, that they are men. Um, there was a practice when the sanitation workers were delivering, uh, not delivering, but picking up, up garbage. There was a practice oftentimes where people in the white community would call them buzzards, you know, because, you know, like carrion, they are are picking up the refuse, the the carcasses, the the old, the trash, the the soiled, the sullied, right? Um and and so they would call them buzzards and they would, you know, the 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 white supervisors would call them boys and and so it was a it was the strike was about about a people saying we have had enough and not only are you not paying us because it was more than money not only are you not paying us but you don't respect us and we demand to be respected and so the the real beauty of it the pain and the beauty which is why I call one of the sections victory on the blue note is because here these men are they invited it's like you invite a friend to your house uh, you know, to participate in a, an engagement with you, and then the friend is harmed. Well, it wasn't your intention that the friend be harmed, but now that your friend is harmed, 
What do you do about the urgency of the engagement that you were supposed to be participating in? And and the sanitation workers have to, in their sadness and in their in their weariness, they have to say, yes, we know King died. We know that he came here on our behalf, but the movement has to continue. And so even with King's death, the strike does not stop. They go on. It's... There's so, I can already feel I can feel the electricity that we could talk about this book for another two hours and I love that and I want to have that with you we've got all this stuff we got to cover but we're gonna have that moment you and me we're gonna have that sometime we're gonna have it together Alice let me ask you do you have a copy of the book in front of you I do do you mind just to put a cap on us talking about this book I I love not only the structure of this book the the format to talk about it in these little sections these these sort of stories that I'll piece together. But you end, well, there's two moments in the book where you really hold us, you stop us and propel us with, with poems. And the second poem that you, that you end us, that you send us off on, Mountaintop, I'd love to ask in all that we've been talking about, if you could send us off talking about this book by reading Mountaintop to us. Absolutely. Mountaintop. Dream big, walk tall, be strong, march on, don't quit, never stop, climb up the mountaintop. Support for the Children's Book Podcast also comes from the Highlights Foundation, hosting intimate and inspiring workshops for children's authors and illustrators. Thinking about writing for children? Or have you always wanted to write a children's book but aren't quite sure how it works? Join us March 21st to 24th, 2019 for Everything You Need to Know About Children's Publishing, a Crash Course, and learn everything there is to know about the children's publishing world, including how the publishing process works, how to know when you're ready to submit a manuscript, how to find which publishers to submit to, how contracts work, the editorial and marketing process, and a whole lot more. And you'll hear from a number of people in the industry who can help to understand the process. Faculty includes Harold Underdown, Leah Henderson, Rachel Werner, Allison Green Myers, Lindsay Barrett-George, and me. Yep, I'll be there too. Registration is now open. Visit highlightsfoundation.org. And from Viz Media. Viz is excited to announce that Pokemon Adventures, the most popular and longest-running Pokemon comic, is now available digitally. Visit viz.com Pokemon to read a free preview of the beloved All Ages series. That's viz.com Pokemon. And let me tell you, as an educator, working with children who I constantly try to affirm that poem is now hanging up in my library after we read this book so that they can see those words and know that a movement doesn't play take place at one place in time. It continues to ripple outward, to extend, yes. to connect. And that yes. those words, those words are for us as much as they were for Memphis in 1968. It's beautiful, this thing that you did here. This power you have with words, Atlas? Oh, man. Oh, man. We're only through one of the two books of your career book. You said before we started recording, two talkers. I don't know how we're going to manage this. And that was prophetic, sure enough. The prophecy is true. We are only okay, one book hey, in. <laughs> hey, hey. Okay, so then, so then, you know, I'm the I'm the self-proclaimed uh, book evangelist, right? So you said it was prophetic, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm spreading the good news about good books. All right. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so you have. Um, let's talk about this upcoming book that you have because um, the format. How let me just say that how beautifully your format for this uh, pays homage to Gwendolyn Brooks to her work. I have to 
believe knowing that you were reading these poems and hearing these poems read to you since you were a child that they you have internalized Brooks's work because the way that this story comes out of you ah is just I mean we're I'm gonna, now I'm going to read to you. Can I read to you, Alice? I'm just going to read the beginning oh, of Oh my! Oh, my God. Did you hear that? Oh, may I read to you? Here I go. Yes. It goes. The, the start of a song for Gwendolyn Brooks begins one. Sing a song for Gwendolyn Brooks. Sing it loud. A Chicago blues. Skip to the beat of elevated trains. They grumble, rumble, and roll real fast. The year is 1925. Gwendolyn Brooks is eight years old. Gray bursts of smoke hide the yellow sun. Can flowers grow without sunlight? Gwendolyn leans on the front yard gate. Gwendolyn is unsure. That unsureness that pulls us into this story that starts us out. Your readers don't know who this woman is, who this girl is, age eight, this girl. And yet to be put into an environment that's loud, that's crowded, that's gray, and to see a flower growing. Right? That is you. That structure, that question, that can flowers grow without sunlight? That is the... That's the reader. Oh, it's beautiful. I could read you this whole book. I'm not even going to lie. I could read you this whole book. One of my other, my favorite moments in this. We're going to get to you. Talk, I know now I'm talking over you. I'm so sorry. I love it. Talk on. I love this though. This, this, okay. So the next time flowers appear and all of your uh, stanzas, um, all of these, these, these moments marked by Roman numerals, they all start with this line that carries us through that says, sing, this is four, sing a song for Gwendolyn Brooks. Her mother believes her father believes, but sometimes Gwendolyn doubts her radiance when jarring crashing discordant words splotch and splatter her notebook paper and when right words don't crystallize Gwendolyn grabs her mother's garden trowel she digs beneath the snowball bush and buries her poems in a backyard grave you say Alice Gwendolyn doubts her radiance to give those words to a reader to a reader you shine but you i know you doubt your radiance sometimes and here is a woman who's writing expressing in poetry who will encounter doubts in the world will affirm the doubts she has the world will say that they are doubting her too but she must find a way you bury those poems and you have to grow from them as well, don't you? Absolutely. And here's the thing. It is a true thing that Gwendolyn buried her poems in the backyard under a snowball bush. This is not contrived, made up, some fantastical line that is there for the point of of eloquence. She really did that. She lived a poetic life. And I know I don't mean that to be cliche. She yeah. she she did. She cared that deeply about about these words and in in this case that doubt well, over well, overwhelming her that she wants to buy them. Here's the thing. Yeah. Gwendolyn Brooks cared I mean there is no truer statement. Gwendolyn Brooks cared about words and the preciseness of the words and where the words fit and how the words fit and the sound and the nuance and the many shades of of meaning to the point that she could take a year, two years, three years to write one poem. Um, and and so so the revision process, the rewriting, the editing, she majored in that. And what's really interesting 
to me in terms of my evolution as a writer is that when I was 24 and writing, I, I prided myself on writing quickly, not realizing at 24, because that's what 24 year old people do when they are not yet evolved. They think that, oh yeah, I've got this. But the greatest writing I have ever done, always now in these recent years, it has happened after I have written and rewritten and gone back again and set it aside and come back again. And then I have something that is close to being, you know, a three-dimensional literary something or another, but it's now got a body, it's got shape to it, opposed to just being something flat that I tried one time and, and then said, oh, I got this, there it is. So, so, you know, she was into revisions and as I have aged with my writing now, revising and rewriting and not being satisfied with the second and third uh you know version of the of the story is just it, it it won't work it's not as excellent as it can be you know what i'm saying yeah so alice what called you to tell gwendolyn's story okay i've been so glad that you asked that yeah. story yes okay so like when i was in the sixth grade I um I went to a place called Snowden School, public school, uh, and we had a teacher there. Her name was Miss Miss Fee, and so Miss Fee tells us that you know we're going to have a, a a visiting poet, and his name is Etheridge Etheridge Knight, and so Etheridge Knight comes to school is sixth grade, and he becomes the very first living writer that I meet. Up until that point, I was really under the impression that you know all of the great poets were dead, right? Yeah. And so here I have this living, breathing poet before me, and he is a black man who looks just like my daddy. For real. I mean, for real. Etheridge and my father could pass for brothers. <laughs> so, so, so it's like, okay, so I'm now captivated. I'm listening to him, and I just feel like this is a moment in my life, right? And and the moment passes and I go on because by that time, you know, I'm writing my poems and I've got journals and notebooks filled with poems myself by sixth grade. So so I, I go on in my life. I, I go to school, high school, graduate college, all of that. And now it's 2015 and it's 2015. And I'm thinking about I've just finished writing the Memphis Martin and the Mountaintop book. And I'm thinking about what can I write next? Because I, I really, I'm, I'm feeling uh, very restless and I want to write something new and I don't know what it should be. And so I say, you know what? I, I started thinking about sixth grade and I said, you know what? I am going to go and I am going to write uh, a picture book biography about Etheridge Knight. And so I began to remember sixth grade and I'm like, did that really happen to me? Or did it, because you know, I've got a great imagination. And so I'm, like, <laughs> so I'm like, did I really meet Etheridge Knight? Did that really happen to me? And so I remember that there was a lady who escorted him to our school. Her name was Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle used to be the religion editor at Publishers Weekly. She was the very first religion editor that Publishers Weekly had. Also, Phyllis Tickle used to be one of the editors. I think she used to be a part owner editor of Peachtree Publishing, which you know is wow. a... So, so I'm like, let me call Phyllis Tickle because she lives, she lives like outside of the city, outside of Memphis. Yeah, no um, joke. And so I said, let me call Phyllis Tickle to like make sure that this is not my imagination, that I really did meet Etheridge Knight and I, I remember him and that this happened to me. And so I call her and I say, hey, Miss Tickle, this is Alice Faye Duncan. And she's like, oh, Alice, yeah, I know you. You know, we met a couple times. She tells me that she remembers me from a bookstore or something or another. And I was like, okay. And uh, and I said, I, I want to ask you some questions about Ethers Knight. And she says, okay, that's great. She says, but you know, I'm dying of cancer. 
And so I can't talk long. She said, I can't talk long. She said, it's best that you just send me your questions by email. And I say, okay. <laughs> so I, I send her the questions by email and she confirms that yes, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, I mean, not Gwendolyn Brooks, she confirms that yes, she brought Etheridge Knight to my sixth grade class where Miss Fee was the teacher. And during that time, it's like 1978, she brought him there because there was a special program called like a artist in the schools program. Yeah. And she was responsible for that. And so Etheridge Knight was one of the quote unquote artists in the schools. So anyways, when I communicate with, with Phyllis Tickle by uh, email, I, I ask these questions and she goes on to tell me a variety of stories about Etheridge Knight being one of Gwendolyn Brooks's like favorite poets and a very good friend because Gwendolyn Brooks discovers Etheridge Knight. She discovers him in a Indiana prison. So, you know, he, he goes on to become a poet who wins a national book award. He goes on to be uh, highly revered during the black arts movement. And, and so she then tells me in an email, she tells me a story about when Etheridge Knight brings Gwendolyn Brooks to her house. Phyllis Tickle and her husband were known for sponsoring literary salons. And so when they bring, uh, when Etheridge Knight brings Gwendolyn Brooks to the house, uh, she's in the throes of laughter and she's sitting in one of their chairs. And when she leans back in the throes of laughter, she, she breaks a, a spine on the, she breaks a, a, a spindle or something in the chair. And immediately, immediately, all of her children, all of her children are like, we cannot fix the chair. Please, mother, do not fix the chair. Gwendolyn Brooks sat in this chair and the, and, the, and the look and the chair because you know Gwendolyn Brooks is a Pulitzer Prize poet. The, the children were enchanted by Gwendolyn when she came to the house, and so the chair then becomes this coveted, uh, sacred thing in the house. And and to this very day, one of her daughters I think has stewardship over the chair, and the chair still. Has not um, has not been been repaired because this is the the chair where Gwendolyn Brooks sat. So so anyways so so what happens to me is when I hear this delightful story, I realize that yes, Etheridge Knight. I could write a a, a biography about him, a picture book biography, but the deserving person is the is is the his literary mother you know his literary mother is the one that really deserves me to crane my neck and redirect my attention to her and when i do that i go out I, I buy these adult autobi not, I, I buy the her autobiographies i buy these adult biographies and that's when i learned the beautiful things about gwendolyn brooks that when she was seven years old her mother and father both had determined that Gwendolyn Brooks was going to be the Lady Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And so they take away her chores. She doesn't have to wash dishes. She doesn't have to sweep. They give her time to sit and write. Um, and, and it's just an enchanting life um, where they celebrate her, her art. They celebrate her gift. And then um, she's so sensitive about the writing that she buries the writing that that she considers not successful. Also, I learned when I did the research that when she is in elementary school, a teacher accuses her of plagiarism because the teacher says, oh, surely you did not write this. And so the mother, her mother gets terribly upset. She takes Gwendolyn back to the school and she says, look, you know, my, my child, you know, majors in writing um, and, and test her now. She says, test her now, right? And so Gwendolyn writes a poem and and the teacher then has to apologize. Um, there's also this beautiful thing when Gwendolyn grows up, does get married, becomes a mother. She and her husband both want to be writers, but the husband decides that one of them has to make money so that the family can eat. And he he elects that Gwendolyn stays at home while he goes off to make the quote unquote the bread. 
And so she's she's very supported, supported by her parents, supported by by her husband. And then her material comes from outside the window. Her material comes from the south side of Chicago. Um, and, and it was just, it was a story that captured me. It was a story that captured me. And I don't I, I, I know. Oh, and so. I, and so I just tried to write. I tried my best to write it. It got it got several rejection letters too. Um, but then this is also what happened. I found a book about um, Gwendolyn Brooks. It was like a collection of interviews that had been collected by um, a, a, a professor, a Spelman professor named Gloria Way Gales. Okay. And I I. I, I look. I I I take um, I take advantage of the of the white pages of of the uh, internet white pages, and so <laughs> so, so I called I called uh, Dr. Gales, and I was like, look, I'm I'm very enchanted with uh, this collection of interviews that you've done by Gwendolyn Brooks, and I'm going to use it to you know to help me tell her story. And I was like, you know, is, is there anything? that I should know about Gwendolyn as I pursue this journey in writing her picture book biography. And so Dr. Gales tells me, um, she tells me, first of all, that she's very busy and that she's on her way. She's about to leave the house to, um, to go to a luncheon and she doesn't have time to talk. And then she says, she says, but she wants me to know that it's Gwendolyn who has chosen me to tell this story. And so simply to listen and follow the story to where it leads. And I'm like, Whoa. I don't know this. I don't know this lady. <laughs> I just, I up and called her on a whim because I just wanted to see if, if she could just tell me, you know, give me some golden nuggets about Gwen, perhaps that the that the books that she has shared didn't say. And and then she says, oh, you know, Gwendolyn has chosen you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay then. Wow. And so you were chosen and so you write. And this this book comes out and it's 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 beautiful and I for all the rewrites for all the edits for all the whatever whatever you've been through I'm sure people listening can just like hear me flipping and flipping through this book um, it's beautiful Alice it um, is so poetic in its its structure itself uh, I feel like I mean it it needs to be I, I'm sure that that is something that was compelling you as you were writing as well. Um, but but you took good care of Gwendolyn. You took good care of her story. Um, it's beautiful. Well done. Thank you. Oh, man. Oh, so Yeah, I mean, aside from me reading your books to you all night long, um, <laughs> just sitting here and just recitating all night, um, I wonder... I wonder watching our time that has slipped through our fingers. I wonder if there's anything about either of these books or uh, just, just about anything about that we didn't cover that you want to make sure you, you have a moment to say here before, before we wrap up. Well, well, first of all, I, I want to say that I believe we as teachers and librarians make the ideal writers yeah. for, for books for children. Because, first of all, we are in touch with the child in us. That is true. And because we have daily encounters with children, real children, real personalities, real child conflicts, um, and and so we make the idea, and because we are many of us are readers, and 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 re, and we are saturating ourselves in the literature, so we know the nuance of of books, and we know the nuance of structure, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I believe that I believe that every librarian and every school teacher should give it a shot, uh, should try their their efforts at writing because because you know children and you know books okay so i that that's and then I love and that. so yeah and, and and so i also believe that in in order to in order to shape your writing so that it 
so that it possesses that because because I, I I'm all about the music. Now I don't know how to play like one instrument, but when it comes <laughs> but when it comes to when it comes to words, I want it to be a a u r a I want it to be an oral I want it to yeah. be a, a, a oral experience something that can be heard. And so I think that if you are going to pursue writing then allow yourself to encounter poetry every day. Read some variety of poems or a poet every day. Um, and because that's what, that's what happened to me, you know, over the course of time, because I was such a, a, a ravenous poetry reader that it, it's oftentimes, it, it's just the way I think that I communicate best. Now, I mean, I'm not technical. I'm not a Gwendolyn Brooks, so I don't, I'm not technically sound or savvy in terms of, I, but, but, but the language, you know, but it's still just, lyrically, it's just the way that I write, that I communicate, because that's what I read every day. I'm, I'm a, I'm a poem reader. I'm sitting here right now with uh, Honey, I Love by Eloise Greenfield, you know, um, and so I say, if you're going to write, encounter poetry every day. Yes. Read the novels, read the, read the novels, but also read, read Eloise Greenfield, read Robert Frost, uh, 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 read, uh, is it John, John, what come right? Uh, John, what is it? John, uh, Riley, um, um, the, 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 the Hoosier poet, um, you know, read Paul Lunch Dunbar, read some Alice Walker, uh, read some Maya Angelou. Read some Etheridge Knight. That'll that'll get you going. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like this idea of of not just that you came into uh, being in the library, librarianship, um, with an interest in writing, but that you're continuing to draw others toward that too. Even just just to try, just to dip your toe in. Um, but to to hear the music in words is something that 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 really that message really speaks to me too, Alice. I I'm I'm grateful for the music I hear when I read your books. I want you to hear that too. I hope that you hear uh, from a reader and from many readers that there's there's music in your words as well. It's nice. I pray so. I pray. I pray so. Yeah, and I'm sure every book has a different song to play as well, but. Yeah, it's. I, I sure feel grateful that uh, that this path we're we're both on uh, ran us into one another. That's really nice. Uh, and I, I, I look, I appreciate you. And also, the poet is James Whitcomb Riley, not John. James Whitcomb Riley. Yeah. So let me do this, Alice. Uh, my head is just spinning in full of all the possibility of what of what the many times I'm sure we're going to connect in the future, what all of that's going to hold. And you've just sure inspired me so much. Um, but I want to make sure that we set ourselves with the children before we go. So I'm going to leave you with this, this question and give you a chance to speak right to your readers, to my readers, to all of our readers. Uh, Alice, I'll see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know if there's a message that I can bring to them from you. The message is never give up. Never. This is Darshna Kiani, children's author and book blogger. Want to find out the latest South Asian books and children's literature? Check out www. Dot flowering mines.com forward slash South Asian Kidlet. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out with the show? 
writing a review on iTunes, or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Sarah, Kate, Lisa, Darshna, Marianne, Jarrett, Anitra, Mike, Lynn, Link, Corina, Cynthia, Elaine, Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.